Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. You don't look super happy. <laughs> Let's go. Could be worse. It's autumn. It's going to get cool again. It's all going to be good. So this morning, we're going to talk about how to be happy. It was a trick question. It was one of those preacher things. I kind of sucked you in and moved out. We're talking about how to be happy from Psalm 1. Now, uh, Psalms are Hebrew pro- poetry, so we don't have time to go into all the ways that they're poetry. And we don't have the time to go into all the ways that they're different genres. But this is a wisdom psalm. So this psalm has more in common with uh, Proverbs than it would other places in the psalm. So we need to keep that in mind, because wisdom literature messes people up a little bit, what wisdom literature is. People think that I read this proverb and it says, you know, if I do this, then I'll be rich, or if I do this, my kids will be perfect, and if we do this, and that's not what proverbs are. That's not what wisdom literature is. Wisdom literature talks primarily about how we're supposed to honor God and go to heaven, but it also talks about how to have purpose and peace in our lives here and now. And that's what Psalm 1 is about when when it's going. That's what we're talking about here is a wisdom psalm. So, now, I don't usually uh, title my sermons, I'm just not that guy, but this one just came to me. I mean, I thought we should have a marquee, and we should put it out there, how to be happy. I mean, people would line up and probably give a lot of money if we really could explain it to them, uh, but they probably won't like it. So, you know, how it kind of comes together. So, uh, because of this, Christian happiness is not the absence of pain and suffering. I know that Father Morgan says that every week. I've heard Father Ryan say that every week. But the reason we say that every week is because the church has completely messed up what happiness is. We've been completely subsumed by the world's definition of happiness. It bleeds into everything, you know. So it's like, it, it, you know, being kind of, uh, you know, happy emotionally or, or, or materially, that is not Christianity. In fact, that's the opposite of Christianity in terms of like, this is what it's all about, right? Me being happy emotionally and me being materially blessed. It's the opposite. And let me tell you why. Think about if we had a rain God, okay? In the past, people have had rain gods, right? And it's dry. It's dry all summer. We need it to rain. What do we do? We do things to try to get the rain God to come through for us, right? We try to get this rain God on our side. That may be saying a prayer in a certain way. Maybe sacrificing a goat. It may be sacrificing a child. These are the things that happen to get the rain god on our side. Our god ain't the rain god. All right? This is not a, a pagan god. That's a definition of, of pagan religion, not of Christianity. Our god does what he wants, how he wants, when he wants. And we, as his people, his children, get to be part of the, this blessed grace that comes from being uh, part of the family of the true god of the universe. So, I, I bet, whoever, I don't know who's preaching next week, maybe you, I bet he says the same thing, because it's so infused our lives about what happiness means and what it means to have joy and the way that we get there that I I think it's going to take us, you know, two, three years of this just every week just to kind of go back. I have trouble with it myself. I haven't mastered it. There are plenty of times that I think, I didn't pray today. No wonder things aren't going my way. You know, I do. I'm like, wait, what? You know, maybe some of you guys do this too. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm preaching to myself. That's all right. Put me up here. I'm preaching to myself. So, you know, so the point is, is that we could feel sad and be happy at the same time. 
Does that make sense? All right, that's the premise that I'm going into this whole sermon today, so that's why I'm foot-stomping it. So, it's not the idea of being like phlebotomized and picking daisies while the world burns around us. Speaking of the world burning around us, is the world burning around us? I don't know historically. I read a lot of books. I'm not sure that it is, but the world sure thinks it is. Okay, people are convinced that this is as bad as it's ever been, and people are unhappy. In the last 30 years, deaths of despair, have you guys heard of that idea? The idea of like the working class suicide, deaths from alcoholism and ODs are up like hundreds of percent, 367 percent was what I had here in my notes, but that sounded too specific. So hundreds of percent, all right, 70,000 a year. Suicide is up 30 percent in the United States from, from the year 2000 until now. It's not great. And you may think, well, it's just a byproduct of income inequality, but it isn't. They, they surveyed college students in 2019 before the pandemic. After the pandemic, everybody got less happy. But in 2019, when we were supposed to be super happy still, right, they surveyed college students, a group who are richer and healthier than the rest of the population, and they asked them questions like this. Do you feel sad? And 70% said, I feel very sad. Over 65% said they felt overwhelming anxiety, and 45% said they couldn't really get out of the bed in the morning. I believe the children are our future. Look out. This is, this is happening with everybody. So now I am not trying to make this into like things were better in some mythical past. That's the last thing I'm trying to communicate because in fact they weren't since 1930 all over the world, people have said they're less happy than they were before that. So if it's the past, it's like over a hundred years. You're, you're, you're in a little house in the prairie territory at that point. You don't know how far back you want to go, but people are unhappy now. They want to be happy. They're not. So how's the church responded to this? Well, as usual, we've divided into two camps, right? You know, one camp says, well, in order to be happy, this may sound more like what I talked about earlier, in order to be happy, you need to pray more, and you need to read your Bible more. You need to give more money, probably to me or somebody standing up here like me, right? Uh, and if that doesn't work, you need to kind of think a certain way. You need to have certain political views, certain ideas about the way the world is going and how it was better at some other time, and that God needs me to get it back in shape so that he can come back and rescue us from these terrible people. That tends to be one camp. I bet a lot of us were in places that participated in that camp or one side or the other. I have a feeling. I'm just throwing it out there as a possibility. Another camp says, God is super happy with me. Whatever I do, God is happy with that. He blesses me. You know, and he says, God loves me just the way that I am. Now, it's important we say I am in this context. And it doesn't actually mean God loves you the way you are, but God loves me the way I am. And it's all about me. It's all about how I feel. And, and that's how God wants me to be. God wouldn't ever ask me to do anything that made me feel unhappy. Therefore, God wants me to be happy and wants me to do the things that I'm doing right now, whatever that is or hold the views of whatever I feel right now. Now, obviously, elements of truly being happy exist in both of these stereotypes that I've just thrown out, right? I mean, God, God really does love us in ways that we don't even love ourselves. God accepts us in ways that we don't accept ourselves. God really does want us to live holy lives, lives, and, and our lives really are better if we pray and read the Bible and hang out with other Christians. They really are better. So, so all those things can be true at the same time. But it's, it's difficult to kind of, you know, to kind of look at it, because you're, you're looking at me and be like, Oh, I get it. This is great. This is like a Presbyterian sermon. It's everything in moderation, right? You just pick the one in the middle. That's the way you go. We got it. Little from column A, little from column E. We're good. Unfortunately, no, because 
when, when Jesus was confronting the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23 about a similar question, he said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. This is important. Notice he doesn't say there, don't worry about the tithing and the cumin and things like that. He just says that the justice and faithfulness is more. He says, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So it gets even worse. That's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is always much harder than you think and much easier than you think, right? So this is much more difficult than you imagine because we're supposed to do all of it. We're supposed to do the whole thing. And you may be like, well, we're doomed. That's not going to work. I've got to pick one or the other. I've got to be in a camp, man. I've got to have a gang. What am I going to do? Well, Psalm 1 tells us what to do. It tells us both how to be happy and how to stay happy. So Psalm 1 begins with, you know, blessed is the man. That the church has traditionally translated that as happy, so I'm going to go with happy. But happy is the man. Blessed is the man. Now, it tells us to begin with kind of what not to do, right? It says, you know, blessed is the man who does not do these things. Now, see, I hate this. I love our rector, but I hate that he has a Ph.D. in, like, Semitic languages. I don't, I mean, I took a year of Hebrew. I don't, I don't know, man. But so just leave me alone, okay? So here's the thing. So it's, you know, I, I have other gifts, other things I can do. This isn't one of them. Anybody who look at those crooked lines for five years is maybe not okay anyway. So there's, so it's a, so anyway, so the, the idea is, is that like modern commentators say, we can't judge those three things as a, as a descent into like getting worse and worse. It does, the Hebrew doesn't bear that. That's probably true, I guess. But guess what? The church always did. St. Augustine did. St. Hilary of Poitiers did. And it kind of makes sense if you read it in English and you pretend like you read it in Hebrew like I did, you know? It kind of makes sense. A wicked person becomes enamored with an ungodly thing, action, or idea, and then they walk in that wicked counsel, this thing they're enamored with, right? And then the person begins to seek other people to be, you know, with this idea. That happens, right? People are just like, hey, I have this ridiculous thing that I believe, but I can't believe it on myself. That would make me a crank. So I need to find somebody else who believes it, right? So then you look, you know, we have the Internet for that. Thank goodness. The electromagnetic pulse can't come fast enough. So it's a, you know, you know then we can gather together in our, in our craziness. and our nuttiness ideas, now we have a community. A community of people who believe wicked things. And then eventually we've got to get a place to meet, so then we sit down on the council of this thing, right? We just kind of get more and more comfortable with our wickedness, with our rejection of God, with our crazy ideas, whatever there are. I, there are still people who believe the earth is flat. So I, I don't know that I'm wrong. You know, so here we go. So, so now this doesn't mean we're not supposed to be around non, aren't supposed to be around non-believers. I don't want you to take that from this thing. You know, when Paul says, don't be unequally yoked, the point of that isn't so much to, to not be around non-Christians. It's that if you're yoked together, you're going to either be pulling in opposite directions and not going anywhere, or worse, just deciding that we'll just go in their direction and go along with them. So it's not an excuse not to know non-Christians and be friends with non-Christians. So the positive statement then comes in verse 2. It says, delight, delight in God's law. Now, law is more general in this verse than we might expect. It means Torah, of course. It means the law of God. But it also kind of means the whole counsel of God. But as Christians, the idea of word sort of comes into view, right? And even, you know, even in Septuagint, the idea of, of word. And then when we think of word, who's, you know, the word of God? Jesus is the word, John 1, the logos of God, right? And, uh, and so it makes sense that first and foremost, we need to delight in Jesus. I don't think I had to go too far to get there, but I think that makes sense, right? 
We delight in God's word and God the word. Those two things kind of go together. Now, delighting in Jesus means being happy, happy nesting in his perfect love for us, certainly. But it also means being happy nesting in his perfect law for us. That's what I mean by both and, right? To love God, we keep his commandments, right? That's what, that's what Jesus told us to do. So the verse 3 uses a simile of a tree in the desert. Now, deserts are desolate. That's a pretty good wordplay, right? So it rains some, though. It rains some. Of you. Some of us have spent some time in the desert. And sometimes it rains a lot, but just for a short period of time. So everything kind of blooms, and then it goes away, and then it all dries up and blows away. So, so that, that's what this psalm does. It compares those who delight in God's word and in, you know, in God the word as a sapling of a tree moved from some desiccated plain that's constantly getting water and drying up and water and drying up, and it gets moved. It gets transplanted is part of the range of the verb there. It gets transplanted, you know, where in the desert would that be? To an irrigation canal or to some sort of constant water source. And so that, that's what makes more sense. And out of that, then, it grows deep roots. It becomes this thing that stands up based on the wisdom of holy God. Verse 4 says, not so with the wicked. They sprout up, they dry up, they blow away. There's no roots there. There's no way that they can live. So at this point, you may be thinking, this is preacher stuff. This is great. I, I'm good, but... How do I actually do that? How do I actually do that? I mean, all, all I have to do is love God and keep his commandments. Great. Good stuff. All I have to do to lose weight is eat less and exercise more. You know, so, so and it's true. There is no shortcut in a way. I mean, th- these are the things that this is what wisdom literature is all about. It's wise to do these things, right? But at the same, way, at the same time, someone does give us a way to do it. It says the happy person meditates on God's word day and night. Now you're like, well, that sounds old-fashioned. Well, but see, in the same New Testament book, Paul said, pray without ceasing. And he didn't mean without ceasing. Well, it was in the Bible. We're kind of believing the Bible, right? It's right there. So what does it mean? What does it mean to meditate on God's word day and night? What, what, is, what word comes to your mind when you think of meditate? Most of us, if we came from a very Western Protestant idea, it's something exotic, Eastern, but in a bad way, you know, kind of like we're looking at your belly button, maybe making strange noises, things like that. I've had people tell me in, in the past that meditation is not a Christian term. And you're like, well, it's in the Bible. Well, they didn't mean that. It's like the wine's not real wine, that crowd. You know, the people. you know, so it's, uh, so it's like, you know, so you're, so it's the idea that meditation, meditation is absolutely a Christian term. And it is, meditation is part of the Eastern Church, the Western Church. If there's another church, I don't know what it is. It's part of, it's, it's part of Christianity, the idea of meditation. So, the, uh, so how do you do this? How do you do this? How do you meditate on the truths of God and on the person of Jesus? Well, one of my best friends is a pastor in Dallas. And one time at a silent retreat, he said something to me. And I talked to him on the phone this past week. So I said, do you remember saying this? He said, I only remember because you keep bringing it up. But it was, but he said to me, he said, right before we went on my first silent retreat, if you've ever been on a silent retreat, it's a wonderful thing, but it's really scary when you go on your first one. Because you're like, what am I going to do here for three days? It's, okay, it's been 45 minutes. I've had my world's longest quiet time or whatever this is, right? You know, and I'm out of ideas, you know. But he said, you know, if you can worry, you can meditate. If you can worry, you can meditate. And, uh, and I've been thinking about that for the last six years. It's kind of true. What is, you know, what do we worry about? I bet some people in here can worry. 
Anyone? You don't have to raise your hand. I can worry. You can worry, worry about little things. I'm going to miss my appointment. Worry about big things. Am I going to lose my job? Or are my kids going to turn out okay? We worry about all these types of things. I bet people can worry. Well, what's worrying? It's perseverating. That's a good psych term. It's perseverating on things that we can't control. It's perseveration. Sometimes we actively worry. We just sit there and grind in it, right? We just grind in our worry. Man, I don't know. And you can feel it, right? You can just feel that you're tensed up and you're worrying. Sometimes we passively worry, and we get, you know, back pain and ulcers and all this other kind of stuff. And so you, you ever, like, I'm upset today, and you're like, why am I upset? And you kind of back it up, and you back, well, that's not what, what happened there. And then somebody cuts you off, like, it's 6.42 in the morning, and you realize you've just been upset ever since, right? It just kind of builds and feeds into this thing. And so, uh, but what if we looked at this a different way? What if we, what if we changed perseveration? I know perseveration is kind of a negative term, but what if we looked at it in perseverating on something good? If we locked into something good, and in order to do that, we're going to, this is the same root word, we're going to have to persevere in our perseverating, right? We're going to have to try to perseverate in ways that we didn't have to when we worry. So that's what meditation really is. It's persevere and perseverating on Jesus and his word, okay? So that when we get distracted, we keep coming back to it. When we get offline, we don't beat ourselves up over it. We just continue these habits that, that build, into it, build happiness into our lives. Now, you're like, that's a great idea. How would I possibly do that? The church has our back. This is why we go on and on about the daily office and things like that. Not because we're good at prayer, but because we're bad at it. Because we don't know what to say. Every, I mean, I grew up in a tradition where everybody had to start every prayer. This is no, if anybody does this, by all means, it's not a problem with the word just. <laughs> Am I wrong? It becomes this liturgical word. We make our own liturgy if we don't follow one. We always do. I just want to thank you. I just want to praise you. I just want to know you. I just want to... Great. Good for you. That's cool. You just made up your own liturgy. The church already did that for us. And it gives us a pattern of prayer. It gives us a pattern of study that allows us, not when everything's going great, when you are feeling it spiritually, it's not hard. Just open up your Bible and it all just like rainbows and unicorns come out of it. And you're just like, oh, everything means everything. Nehemiah, bring it on. You know, it's all just happening. But those days when you wake up and it ain't happening, the daily office is sitting there for you. It's right there to point you in the right direction and help you to meditate when you don't feel like meditating. And when we get to those sweet moments, though, when it's in the background, when we're separating in the background on Jesus, I would submit to you that you'll never both be happier or maybe even feel happier. Some of you have been there. It's a wonderful thing. But it's not required. The requirement is just to get out there and do it. Get in the box. Keep swinging. So when I was in Kirkuk years, I guess 10 years ago now in Iraq, um, as a senior chaplain, we hosted these Turkmen civil and religious leaders on the on Kirkuk Air Base, and this, Saddam had it under that air base as well. They had this uh, Turkmen shrine. It was like this mosque and like a, like a, a, a tomb of some famous Turkmen like from way back, like from like 800 or 900 or something like that. And it was a rock, so it was the desert. There was a graveyard, a big cemetery around it in which there were poisonous snakes, which were terrifying. But beyond that, there wasn't much in terms of the uh, you know, vegetation or anything like that. Except for one, there was this big tree on the corner, on the, kind of the back corner of the edifice of this mosque. 
And we'd bring the Turkman on once every couple of weeks or so, and they'd complain about not having access to it, and I'd you know, apologize, and we'll just do this again in three weeks. This, you're, you know what I mean. So it was... Uh, so one day, the, the kind of the, the main Turkman guy's son lived in Colorado, so he spoke really good English. And, uh, and I asked him, I said, you know, it's kind of weird, that tree. Is it, was there like a spring here or something like that? He goes, oh, the tree has a story. He said, uh, in the 1950s, there was a Turkman who was murdered by the Iraqi regime then. They used to, they've been bad a long time. Who was murdered by the Iraqi regime. And, uh, and his mother came every day. And, uh, you know, the, the seeds will pop up in the spring. It rains. It blows around like we talked about. They blow, you know, the, the, the seed will pop up for a minute, and they all dry up and go away. But his mother would come with whatever little water she had, and she would come pray for her son, and she'd pour water on the seedling. And she did this for days and weeks and years, and then eventually, some 50, 60 years later, there was this tree. So this is how it goes with delighting in Jesus and spreading his word. There was a long time that it would have looked like that tree wasn't going to make it. And it wouldn't have made it if that mother didn't come and dump whatever water she had on top of the seedling every day. It's going to be hard to make it, let's put it that way. It's going to be difficult to make it if you're not watered by God's word, prayer, fellowship with other people. It's going to be hard to make it. Can it be done? Probably. Maybe if there's like a water source you don't see or something. But work with me on this illustration, people. I'm trying so hard. It's going to be difficult to do it. That's what wisdom is all about. Here's the wise way to live if you want to be happy. So to wrap this up, you're like, okay, I'm so excited about this. This is great. You motivated me so well to go out there and do these things and be happy, but I know by Tuesday I won't. I'm going to fail. I'm going to miss a day. I'm going to be too tired. I'm going to yell at my kids and storm out. I'm going to say, can't you be quiet? I'm trying to pray in here, which always is a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so what do you do? Where's your happiness? Then you'll just have guilt and you'll just feel like this terrible person. Well, I want to leave you with some really great news. Okay? So this psalm, the first verse of this psalm says, happy is the man. Blessed is the man. Right? Now, a lot of times in scripture and, and, a lot, and thankfully modern translations pick up on this, a lot of times the word man is, is really just a neutral term for people. Happy is the one. Happy is the person. That works a lot of times when they use Hadam there. That kind of works. But this says happy is the yeesh. Right? Happy is the man. That's the reason ESV translates it as man and not person. Now, this psalm is for everybody. You may be thinking, oh, this is only for men. This is like a dude psalm. Oh, you know, this, you know, this kind of thing. This psalm is for everybody, okay? It's for everybody, all races, all colors, the whole bit. It's for everybody. And why does it say, happy is the man? Well, because the church has always interpreted this to mean that the source of your happiness is from one man. From one man. Jesus Christ. So when Psalm 1 says, happy is the man, the church has always viewed the man in question as Jesus Christ. So Psalms do this a lot. If you study Psalms, Psalms, this awesome thing about Psalms, there's like this, this text and subtext and kind of this other thing that they're doing. And we are Christians, so we believe that the Bible is about Jesus. And this one really, really directly is, right? It says, happy is the man 
Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one in the desert who turned away from temptation. Jesus is the one in the garden who did the hard thing when he didn't want to do the hard thing, right? Jesus is the man who delighted in God's law and meditated on it day and night, right? Jesus is the one who modeled that for us. Jesus is the tree planted next to the living waters of the Holy Spirit. In John 15, 5, I mean, he says he's a vine, kind of in the tree family. Let's work with it. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So we're the branches then in Christ's tree. That's the way this is going to work. Our good works that are demonstrated, you know, by loving God and loving neighbor uh, are, are fruit on that tree. But they're all sourced out of the same, <laughs> same tree. That's the Jesus tree, right? With me on Jesus tree. Okay. So we're not really going to be happy until we understand that. You can't do enough to please God. He's not the rain God. You can't sacrifice enough. You can't do all the offices. You can't even do all the old offices when there are 27 of them and memorize all the psalms. Did you know that to be a bishop in the first thousand years of the church, you had to memorize all 150 psalms? Even that wouldn't do it. It wouldn't be enough. So that's it. That's how we're happy. We love God, keep his commandments. We do that by meditating on it day and night, sometimes with ourselves, sometimes with the community, and always with an eye on loving our neighbor. And when we fail in those two steps, we lean on the grace and mercy of Jesus because Jesus did it first. Jesus paid it all. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.